0: Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Campus Preview Weekend. Um, If if all of our prospective students and previewers and families would be willing to stand, would you stand so we can see you and welcome you? Uh, Welcome. We are, uh, we are really glad that you are with us, um, and we pray that this is a, a blessed time for you guys as you get to know Covenant College a little bit, uh, sit in on classes, and, and more importantly, uh, meet and be a part of our community for today. Uh, just a quick reminder, immediately following chapel, there'll be a, a question and answer period with Dr. Halverson, so if you'd like to stay, um, a few folks, the cabinet will be here as well, and you can ask any questions you'd like to ask. And then a reminder, this evening, Mountain Affair uh, starts at 8 o'clock p.m. <laughs> Uh, doors will open at 7:25, and lines usually start about now. So, 7:25 <laughs> tonight. Doors will open. My oldest daughter, Henry, uh, turned 18 two days ago, and Sandy and I were reflecting on uh, what it's been like to uh, raise her, and uh, we ended up talking about one of our sort of uh, fond memories that we hadn't talked about in quite a while. Um, as most of the parents in the room will, will know, one of the great joys in raising children is the opportunity to listen to them uh, absolutely butcher lyrics to songs. Um, so you know they they can only sing that which is within their context. So they hear these songs and the words that sound similar to the things that they know and the things that are similar to their passions and interests are the things that they sing. So uh, raising our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, We, of course, raised them with with lots of Johnny Cash and important uh, spiritual developing 80s music. Um, But we also had uh, in our car uh, a whole slew of We Sing Bible Songs uh, CDs. So we would put those in on occasion. And Henry, when she was a tiny little person, would sit in the back seat, strapped into her car seat and sing along. And uh, one of the songs that that we played, um, it's called A Little Talk With Jesus Makes It Right. Does anybody know this? A little talk with Jesus makes it right. All right. A little talk with Jesus makes it right. All right. In trials of every kind, praise God I always find. A little talk with Jesus makes it right. All right. So uh, that would be blasting and <laughs> Just a taste of mountain affair. <laughs> um, So one day, Sandy and I are driving, and Henry's in the back seat, and she's, I think she's three, and she's blaring, and she's singing out little talk with Jesus, and and as we're sitting, I kind of caught something, and and I was like, wait a sec, uh, what is that? And and it wasn't quite a little talk with Jesus, so I turned the music down just enough that I could hear her voice, and she's belting with all of her soul. A little chocolate Jesus makes it right. (laughs) All right. So she clearly had a rather profound sense of (laughs) confectionary Christology. Um, But such is the case, sometimes things happen around us that uh, we need to listen to just a little bit more acutely to understand what's actually happening and what we're actually hearing. Um, And our passage this morning um, is a little bit like that. Um, It's a passage that on the, the surface looks like it's really about temptation. Uh, But when you dig below, we find that it's really, um, at its essence, like so many things, about grace. Uh, But in order to dig in deeply, we need to listen a little bit uh, more acutely to what Scripture has to say about our adversary, what the Bible actually says about Satan. So uh, when we talk about Satan, when we look at Satan, the sort of uh, common um, Milton-esque approach and belief that we have about Satan is that as one of the fallen angels... um, he revolted against God in heaven because he wanted to be God and take God's place and this massive uh, heavenly uh, battle took place and God, of course, cast him down and um, he was cast out of uh, heaven and um, he and a third of the angels came along. Um, but the scripture, if we listen a little bit more acutely, teaches something quite a bit different than, than sort of what Milton uh, showed us. Um, scripture teaches that there is a, a hierarchy within creation. God is, of course, at the top. And then below God, you have the heavenly host, you have the angelic beings, those who are in the very presence of God in the heavenly realms. And then you have, of course, man. And Psalm 8 talks a little bit about this order. Uh, It says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So this picture of the hierarchy of creation. You have God, angels, and man. And I think that this hierarchy really is what sits at the root of the fall of Satan. Because God calls angels to a very particular task, a very interesting task. Um, Hebrews talks about it. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So angels who are created above man are called by God to serve man, those whom will inherit salvation. So while Satan may like to be his own God, uh, the Bible does not teach that he desires to take God's place. His fall is not about him wanting to be God. What it is about is pride. It's about the fact that he couldn't reconcile doing what God had called him to do, that he could not abide serving a created being lower than, than himself. And so throughout scripture one of Satan's primary goals is to prove that God's judgment was in fact wrong and that man was not worthy of his angelic service. We see it with Job where Satan sets out to prove that Job would curse God face curse God to his face, proving Job unfaithful, unworthy. We see it with Peter when Satan goes before God to request to sift Peter. That Peter, who had promised that he would go with Jesus to his death, would flee and so prove himself unworthy. We see it with Judas Iscariot. Satan tempts one of the inner circle, one of Jesus' closest friends, to betray him for money. Man, unworthy of God's care and unworthy of the service of angels. So, as we look to the scripture, the fall of Satan doesn't take place in some heavenly battle. Um, Instead, the fall of Satan actually takes place in the Garden of Eden. When God comes in judgment and curses the serpent after he successfully tempted Adam and Eve, because you have done this, says God, cursed are you above all livestock. And the ultimate carrying out of the judgment of that curse is reserved for the one who will come, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, who's prophesied about in that very curse, the one that Satan is about to encounter in our text. So as we move into Matthew chapter 4, will you pray with me? Father God, uh, forgive me a sinner. Uh, Speak through me, I pray, by your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So we come into John chapter 4, and immediately what's preceded our text is in John chapter 3, Jesus had been baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, "This is my son, whom I love; with him I am well pleased." And we don't want to miss this beautiful beautiful picture of the Trinity there. God the Father is speaking, the spirit of God descending, and the son of God being blessed by the Father. And immediately following that, Scripture tells us that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And it may seem like an odd thing to do. Why would the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? But if we pull back a little bit, we begin to see parallels that sort of raise up and they give us insight into what's happening. When God called his son Israel out of Egypt... He brought them through the baptism of the Red Sea and into the wilderness for 40 years. And that time in the wilderness was a time of testing, a time of preparation where Israel was to learn that God alone was the one who would provide, that God alone was the one who would give them strength, that he was their only hope. And now Jesus, after the proclamation of God's favor upon him, is taken through his baptism and then into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days he too will see the all-sufficiency of God the Father. So while Israel would fail, they would point to the one son who would not fail. So Jesus comes, he's baptized, and into the wilderness he goes. And scripture tells us that he's fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. When you look back at Israel, the water and food was one of the primary uh, means of their grumbling, one of the things they had the most difficulty with. But Jesus fasts the entire time. And in this state, this state of vulnerability, but also state of clarity, Satan sees the time to come and the time to once and for all prove that God's judgment has been wrong all along. For if he can convince God that the Son of God, God made flesh as a man, is unworthy of his service, his point is proved. So he lays the first temptation at Jesus' feet. Scripture says the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And think about the cosmic magnitude of what's happening here. The cosmic magnitude of this meeting. Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, the angel that tempted Adam and Eve. The angel that literally planted the seeds of death that would corrupt and wreck this world as we know it. He approaches Jesus, the created angel, before his creator, and he says, if you are the son of God, not a challenge, just a whisper of doubt, if you are the son of God, if he really loves you and is well pleased with you, surely he wouldn't want you hungry. Tell these stones to become bread. And it may seem at the outset like a fairly innocuous temptation, right? But in his cunning... Satan is doing something very intentional. He's addressing a base need, hunger. And the thing about base needs, it's not that they're inherently sinful in any way, but they are inherently self-focused. When you talk about base needs, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm cold. They are about self and they turn and they look inward. So Satan is tempting Jesus to use his power to serve himself. Like Adam and Eve were selfish, like all men are selfish, self centered and unworthy of the care of angels. And like with Adam and Eve, Satan's words, they really do, they drip with poison. Hear that. Hear that word, if you are the Son of God. Because I think this temptation, which is a real temptation, and all of these temptations are real temptations, because Jesus is fully God and he is fully man and Satan is laying temptations before him, but this temptation is not about hunger, I don't think. I think it's much more about his identity as the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. Sure, you've been baptized, God's spoken a word, but there have been no miracles. You've done no ministry, if you are the Son of God. And is it possible, is it possible that Jesus was tempted, just maybe tempted to verify with a harmless miracle, quashes hunger, but he'd know that he really is the Son of God. But he knows. He knows all too well that his mission is that of a suffering servant. As hungry as he might be, he is the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. He knows exactly who he is. He is a servant and it is not about himself. To serve himself, to serve his own needs, is anathema to what he is called to do, directly contrary to his mission as the Son of God, which begins by him here denying himself and it ends at the cross where he dies for our sins. I just finished reading uh, Lord of the Rings again, um, so you'll forgive me. I'm in a a middle-earth mood, but um, as I read, I kept being struck um, by, by Sam, by Samwise, and I know Frodo and Gandalf and Aragorn, they're the heroes, but in some ways, Sam is this, this beautiful, um, self-sacrificial picture. And towards the end of Return of the King, when they get into Mordor, and they're going through the plains of Gargoroth on their way to Mount Doom, where they're going to um, eventually get rid of and destroy the Ring of Power, Sam realizes he has this moment of clarity where he's looking out, and he sees Mount Doom, and they know it's there, and it's not that far off, but he realizes They don't have enough food, and they don't have enough water for any kind of a return. And Sam begins to think, and he begins to panic a bit, but then a piece on him kind of settles down, and he realizes what his mission is. He's called to protect and care for Frodo. So he gives the last bit of food to Frodo, he gives the last bit of water to Frodo, he even ends up carrying Frodo on his back up the slopes of Mount Doom. That picture of mission that vision, that clarity, we get just a small reflection of the clarity, the mission of Jesus. He knew what he was called to, and so he answers the devil. He says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he answers the deceiver with a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where the Israelites were grumbling about not having food. But Jesus, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So he tries again. The devil then took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. The second temptation setting changes, and now they're aloft, sitting on top of the temple in Jerusalem. And as he stands there, God is once again at his temple, not in the holy of holies, but now standing at the pinnacle of it. And as he looks out, imagine what Jesus sees. With the eyes of a man, he sees the world and the land that he created. He sees the promised land. He sees Mount Moriah where Abraham and Isaac climbed. He sees the land of David and the place where David sinned and repented and ruled, the land that he created and Satan tries again. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Fair enough, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. And that passage there, it's a quote from Psalm 91. It's a psalm about God protecting those that he loves. If you are God's son and God protects those he loves, then throw yourself down. His angels, they'll protect you. And again, it may seem like an odd temptation. It may seem like something that wouldn't actually be very tempting at all. But remember what's just happened at the baptism of Jesus. Remember what's just happened. God has proclaimed Beloved, but that this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. That's a quote from Isaiah. It's in reference to the suffering servant of the Lord. And Satan says, I heard the blessing proclaimed at your baptism. I know it speaks of one who may have to suffer. If there's some kind of suffering before you, you'd better make sure that God will protect you from whatever is coming. Jump, and you'll know for sure. And by testing God, you'll demonstrate mankind's lack of faith. who have tested God over and over, demonstrated their faithfulness at every single turn throughout history, faithless, unworthy of my service. And the truth is, Satan has no idea how close to home he has struck. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know what's coming. He can know the scripture. He can know where that quote came from, but he doesn't know what's unfolding. But Jesus, Jesus does know. He knows what suffering lies ahead. He knows that he stands looking over creation. How tempting it must have been to see if God really would protect him from what's coming. Would God really protect him from the cross, from death, the Father's punishment for sin? Would God care for him in the midst of the trial and suffering that he knew was coming? To jump and die here would be far more desirable than to endure what lay before, knowing that God was not with him. Satan says, jump, you'll know. But again, Jesus is unswerving in his answer. This time, he quotes from Exodus 17. Jesus says, it's also written, do not put your Lord, the God, to the test. In Exodus 17, the Israelites were thirsty, but instead of trusting God, they question whether or not the Lord was even with them. Jesus says, do not put your Lord God to the test. I know that he is with me. And then we come to the final temptation, the third and the grandest of the bunch. Again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he says, if you will bow down and worship me. From wilderness to temple to mountaintop, and it's here where we get to the very heart of Satan's true desire for God's son, as a man, to bow down and acknowledge the angel as superior to the man. Acknowledge his rightful place of of subservience before the angel. And Satan says, look, it's all in in my dominion. It's yours if you simply set the record straight. Bow down and worship me, man before the angels, the way that it has always supposed to be. Bow down. And I'll give my rule to you. And when you do, bowing before me, it will prove that I've been right forever and always. And on the surface, this may seem like the least tempting of all of the temptations. Jesus is standing on a mountain that he created, looking at a world that was created through him and for him, at a world that he will reign over in a short period of time. But there's a catch. This is an offer of dominion and an offer of rule without suffering, without the cross, without experiencing hell in our place. And how tempting that must have been. Remember, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Lord, if there is any other way, and here it is, right before him, kingship without the pain that awaits him, without punishment, from the Father, without becoming sin, without receiving the full weight of the curse of our sin. But Jesus' answer is clear. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Go away, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. A quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 about serving Yahweh and Yahweh alone, the one true God. And scripture says the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. With that, Jesus is obedient to the Father in the face of Satan's temptations. The tempter that snared Adam and Eve is turned away by the second Adam, the righteous son of God. And where Israel proved unfaithful, Jesus proves perfectly faithful. So Satan departs, and angels, this beautiful picture of irony, angels come and minister uh, to him. So at the end of Return of the King, the searching eye of Sauron is focused in one place. If you've seen the movies or if you remember, if you've read the books, Sauron is looking out and his eye that has been searching the entire Middle-earth looking for the ring of power is now set on one place. and It's set on the Black Gate. And it's set there because he believes that there's only one possible reality. And the only possible reality is that Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the heir to the throne of Gondor, that he has the ring of power. And that he and the kings of the west have come, and they're camped there before the Black Gate. And Sauron's eye is set right there. And in his um, ignorance, he misses the reality. Because Frodo and Sam are in Mordor, and they're on their way to Mount Doom. But he can't see it, because he can't imagine that anyone would have the ring of power and not use it. It doesn't occur to him that perhaps anyone would try to destroy it. That's Satan's slip-up as well. Satan's charge against mankind is that we are unworthy, unworthy of his service, unworthy of God's care. And he's right in every way And we make his case for him every day, more convincingly than he ever could make it. But the rub is this, that like Sauron, he's blinded by his own heart. He can't understand grace. In his arrogance, I doubt he was capable of considering that God already saw us clearly. He already saw our unworthiness and still loved us deciding to die for us, substituting his own son for us on the cross, offering him to curse and judgment and punishment on our behalf. I think that fills the evil one with disdain and with rage. Jesus gave all for us, not because we are worthy, but despite our unworthiness. It has nothing to do with our merit and everything to do with the love of God. It is grace. And grace does not make sense to a heart that is woven together with pride. To Satan, dying for the unworthy must seem like the grandest, foolishment, grandest foolishness possible. And that foolishness is the power of God to us who are being saved. For if we're being saved, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we're declared righteous by Christ's work, proclaimed worthy by the Father. That is grace. I was talking to my brother on the phone the other night. And he's in a spot in his life where he's, he's learning a lot about himself and about his Lord. And he said to me, quote, is exactly what he said. He said, dude, I really don't believe I'm worthy of God's love. And I rejoiced. Because when we can see that we are unworthy, we can more deeply experience the miracle of God's grace. There's a Catholic priest in Southern California uh, named Greg Boyle. He lives in Boyle Heights, uh, district of Los Angeles. It's it's really the gang capital um, of of the country, and gang capital uh, of Los Angeles. He ministers to um, gang members and folks coming out of gangs, uh, he started something called Homeboy Ministries, which is uh, a ministry where they, there's, a, there's a cafe and actually two of them. Uh, they make uh, salsa and chips. Um, they do uh, tattoo removal. It, it's, it's an amazing ministry in Los Angeles. Uh, but in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, which I read this summer, he tells this story. He tells a story about himself right after he was ordained as a priest. Um, in that first year after his ordination, he spent a year in a little town co- called Cochabamba, Bolivia. And while he was there in Bolivia, uh, he was serving, and his Spanish was, was just mediocre. It was okay. He could do mass if he had uh, the little missile, if he had the book, um, but he was learning. And early on in his stay in Coquabamba, um, some health workers came and asked if he would be willing to go up into the mountains and do a, a service for the Tarani Indians, the Quechua Indians in this little town of Tarani. So, he says, sure. The health workers come and pick him up, and they take him up, high up into the mountains to this little village. They hadn't seen a priest for 10 years. And it's a village that collects flowers and then carries the flowers down the mountain to markets to be sold. So they're on their way up in the Jeep, and and Greg Boyle looks in his bag and he realizes he doesn't have his book. His Spanish is not great, He knows he can't do Mass without it, and he starts to panic. And he gets up, and when they get up there, there's a field full of Quechua Indians, and they're there for the service, right? So Greg Boyle goes to do this this service, and he says it was the absolute worst flop that he could ever possibly imagine. He couldn't remember what to say, it was so bad he couldn't even remember what he said. He was humiliated. All he wanted to do was finish and disappear. As he's about to leave, it's over. He says a blessing on the, on the Indians, and he starts to walk off, and as he's walking off, one of the health workers brings over a woman who wants to do confession with him. So for five minutes, she begins to confess. He has no idea what she's saying because she's speaking Quechua. Um, five minutes, ten minutes. 30 minutes later, she finally finishes. He blesses her. She leaves. He looks around, and everyone is gone. No one is in sight. The health workers have left. Quechua Indians have all left, and he's standing alone in a field. So he throws his bag over his shoulder, and he begins to walk. He decides he's just going to walk down the mountain. When an amazing thing happens. He's walking across the field, and an old Quechua campesino, a farmer, comes up. And walks right up to him and the farmer appears to be ancient. He's got wrinkles everywhere you could imagine wrinkles being. He's wearing old wool pants with a white button-up shirt with frayed collars. He's got a rope belt holding his pants on. He's wearing an old fedora that's beaten by the weather. He's got sandals on and his feet are caked with mud and he walks right up to Greg and he's about a foot shorter than him and he looks up at him and he says, Tata. Gracias por haber venido. Father, thanks for coming. And Greg can't think of anything to say, but before he can, the old man reaches into his pockets and pulls out two handfuls of rose petals. And he gets up on his tippy toes and he raises his hands up and he kind of signals to Greg to kneel down. So Greg kneels down, and he pours the rose petals over his head. And he reaches into his pockets again, pulls out more rose petals, drops them over again and again. And by that time, Greg Boyle's looking at the rose petals, and he's weeping. The old man turns and walks away, and Greg stands there and weeps. At his most humiliated, at his most unworthy, God says, I love you exactly the way you are. Not because of anything in you, not because of anything you've done, but because of who I am. You are mine. You are mine and nothing can separate you from my love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, that is what Satan rails against. It's what we seek to share. So glorify our risen Savior, the one who knows every temptation we know but remained faithful and loved us despite our faithlessness. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we stand before you humbled by your grace and by your mercy. Help us, Lord, to know our unworthiness that we might better understand your grace, and help us to understand your grace so that we might better understand our unworthiness. Be with us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing the doxology with me. Praise God for... In peace.